We're in 2 Kings chapter 9. We left off with verse 23 last week. 2 Kings chapter 9 verse 23. For the whoredoms and witchcrafts of Jezebel, Jehu is furiously driving his army to Jezreel. And he's going to execute judgment on the house of Ahab. That means all of his descendants, according to the word of the Lord. And having sent two horsemen who never returned to give their report after they met with Jehu, King Joram and King Isaiah, or Ahaziah decide they're going to get in their own chariots and go out and speak to Jehu. And that meeting did not go well. And whereas King Joram sought to know whether Jehu was coming in peace, and that was an earthly peace, we studied it, Jehu came to establish peace the Lord's way. And God would use Jehu to punish sin, thereby proclaiming the righteousness of God. So we're going to reread verse 23 and go right into verse 24 and take a look at what we have before us. And if you're just joining us, we're in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 23, which says, And Joram turned his hands and fled, and said to Ahaziah, There is treachery, O Ahaziah. And Jehu drew a bow with his full strength and smote Jehoram, now that's Joram, it's the same person, between his arms, and the arrow went out at his heart, and he sunk down in his chariot. Full strength, that's how he drew the bow. That's all the way back. Now if you've ever shot a bow, whether it's a compound bow or a long bow, Whatever you want to call it, you have to do something to get that arrow to fly. And you've got to seat that arrow with the point that way, with the head of it going that way, right? You've got to get it in there right. But once you've got all of those things done, you've got to draw that bow. And the harder the pull is on that bow, the faster that arrow goes if you're able to pull it back. And so if you just want to shoot an arrow 15 or 20 feet, you pull that bow back just a little bit and let it go, and that arrow will land on the ground a few feet in front of you. The further and the faster you want it to go, the further back you pull it. But if you pull that bow back full strength, the command you're giving that bow is to release that arrow as fast as it will go. And sometimes that's over 200 feet per second. And so that's what, Je- what Jehu did. And to understand how much that full strength was in this case, consider that the arrow struck Joram in the middle of the back because he was fleeing away. In the middle of the back and went out all the way through his heart. It said between his arms, but between the arms is between where the arms join. So, so it was in the middle of the back. It had to pierce bone and cartilage and muscle and other bodily tissue. And Joram wasn't sitting still. He was going that way. 
So mathematically, that decreased the velocity of the arrow just a little bit. Even so, that arrow still went out at Joram's heart. That's full strength. Now let's understand what the term full strength teaches us spiritually. It pertains to God's judgment upon sin. In Revelation chapter 15 and verse 1, the Bible said, and this was John writing, And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues. For in them is, listen to what it says, filled up the wrath of God. Now listen to Revelation 16, verse 1, one chapter later. Still speaking about this. And I heard a great voice of the te- out of the temple saying to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. They were told to pour out the vials of the wrath of God. In the chapter before, we read that in those plagues is filled up the wrath of God. In other words, the full strength of the wrath of God is in those plagues. And... In chapter 16, we're told that those vials of wrath were to be poured out, these plagues were to be poured out upon the earth. And so what that tells us is they weren't trickled out, they weren't tipped and poured partially out, poured partially out, but all the way out. That's what is going to happen. God's wrath is going to be poured out on the earth. It's going to be full strength when he delivers it. And that's why nobody who is a recipient of his wrath will survive it. There won't be a rock, a mountain, a den that they can hide in to escape the wrath of God. And with this principle in view, that is God's judgment is poured out full strength on the unbelieving earth. It was necessary that Jehu draw his bow back with his full strength and that that arrow went all the way through, piercing the heart and coming out the heart of the one who was judged guilty before God. Now, verse 24 says, After this arrow went out through his heart, Jehu or Joram sunk down in his chariot. That word for sunk down also is translated as the word fell and as the word subdued and as two words brought low. When God pours out his wrath, the recipients of his wrath will be completely subdued. They'll fall. They'll be brought low. They'll sink down in their chariot. They'll no longer stand in command, charging their adversary. They'll try to flee, but they'll sink down. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 26 through 28. 1 Corinthians 15, 26 through 28. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Now this is speaking of God. For he hath put all things under his feet. 
But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted. He didn't put himself under his feet, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. They're subdued. Not one thing will escape being subdued by the Lord, not even death. Now the believers, we will be resurrected from death because Christ was resurrected from death and we're in him. We died with him, we were raised with him, and we will literally be raised in resurrection when we die. For us, he has subdued death already. For his enemies, he has subdued them with death, and then judgment, and finally, eternal punishment. Verse 25, then said Jehu to Bidkar, his captain, take up and cast him in the portion of the field of Naboth the Jezreelite. So Jehu told Bidkar, take Joram out of that chariot. And you cast him, throw him in the portion of the field of Naboth the Jezreelite. For remember how that when I and thou rode together after Ahab his father, the Lord laid this burden upon him. All right, a lot said there, so let's look at it. He was to be cast into the portion of the field of Naboth the Jezreelite. In another way, we, we might say this, let him lie in the bed he made for himself. This was the portion or part of the field of Naboth that Ahab and Jezebel had committed the horrible murder of Naboth. They took his field. Remember Ahab said, I want that field, but he won't give it to me. Jezebel said, who's king around here? So she set him up. They set a feast and put Naboth on high. And then they accused him of blasphemy and had him stoned to death and took his land and and that wonderful vineyard he had that was close to the palace and gave it to Ahab. The word portion here, both in the Hebrew language and then in the New Testament from the Greek language are very similar. They refer to a part or a place or a piece. And there is a part, a place here that belonged to Naboth. It was his. But it was taken away from him by the sin of another. So there's another important spiritual application made in the Bible about the word portion. We go to Job sometimes because there's so much to learn in Job. And in chapter 20 in verse 5, now this is way after Job has suffered loss. And his friends have come and they've kind of rotated getting up and speaking against him and saying, well, this must be why this happened to you, and this must be. And a lot of things they said were true, but they didn't apply to Job. This wasn't why God allowed Satan to afflict Job at all. And one of Job's friends in Job 20 and verse 5 was named Zophar. And Zophar said that the triumphing of the wicked is short. And the joy of the hypocrite, but for a moment. 
In that verse, the wicked and the hypocrite are so far subject for the remainder of the passage. So when you go all the way down to verses 27 through 30, listen for the word portion. The heavens shall reveal his iniquity, that is, the the wicked and the hypocrite, and the earth shall rise up against him. The increase of his house shall depart, and his goods shall flow away in the day of his wrath. This is the portion of a wicked man from God, and the heritage appointed unto him by God. Now in our text, the word portion referred to a geographical place. It was a vineyard that Jezebel and Ahab wickedly took from Naboth. And in the passage I read to you from Job, the word portion refers to what happens to a wicked man. It's exactly what happened to Ahab and his household. All they had flowed away in the day of God's wrath. And here in our text, Joram, who was from the house of Ahab, had wrath executed against him by by Jehu. But there is an even greater spiritual truth. They're all good. There's an even greater one that we learn about the word portion. It's shown later in the Bible. In fact, in the Revelation. In the 21st chapter of the Revelation, in verse 8, the word part is used instead of the word portion. It's the same thing, though. Same word. And here's what it says, Revelation 21, verse 8. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So what's their part or their portion? Now, these are unbelievers. And Brother Fulton taught verse by verse on Revelation just a few years ago. So if you have any struggles with the book of Revelation, I encourage you to go look those messages up on Facebook and they'll, you'll have a clear mind about all of it after it's over with. And this was one of the things taught on because people say, oh, so if I'm ever afraid, I'm going to go to the lake of fire? No, but we're not going to spend a lot of time teaching on that. I wanted you to know that those are all unbelievers. Everyone in this verse, in verse 8, is an unbeliever regardless of how they're broken down whether they're an unbelieving uh, abominable person or an unbelieving murderer or an unbelieving sorcerer, they're unbelievers. And it says they'll have their part or their portion in the lake of fire, and that's the second death. So just as the blood of wicked Ahab was licked up by the dogs in the portion of Naboth, and just as the body of Joram was cast into the portion of Naboth, so the unbelievers will be cast into the lake of fire, which is their portion or their part. Now, what that does not mean is that they will be partially cast into the lake of fire, or they'll just have to spend a little time there, a little portion of their time. It does not mean that. That means that is their portion. That is their part. Our portion is not the lake of fire who believe. Our portion is not the result of the wrath of God. It's already been executed on Jesus for us at the cross. But it is the portion for those who 
reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in fact, the heretical doctrine of purgatory, which is taught by the Catholics, is that a person can go to to purgatory for a little while. And that time period apparently varies and then can be prayed out of it by, or things done on this side of death can be done to minimize their time in purgatory. The problem is it's not in the Bible. And if it's not in the Bible, then it's just made up, isn't it? It's fable. And all purgatory does is try to circumvent, to go around the necessity of being born again by faith in Jesus' sacrifice. That's all it is. It's just a a way to avoid the gospel. What about the believers? What's our part or our portion? If you back up two verses in Revelation 21 where I was reading, verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now that's the believer. That's our part. That's our portion. It's not, again, that we are partially partaking in the resurrection. It's, that's our part. That's our portion Just like the lake of fire is the portion of the unbeliever. And in the second half of the verse we just read, let's look back in our text again in verse 25, 2 Kings 9, 25. Jehu is telling Bidkar, here's why I want you to cast his body into that portion. For remember how that when I and thou rode together after Ahab his father, the Lord laid this burden upon him. That word burden is also the word prophecy. He's saying, Bidkar, the reason you're going to cast him into the portion of Naboth is that when you and I rode together after his father, after Ahab, God said that the household of Ahab, it'd be made like the house of Jeroboam. They're going to be cut off. This is why we're doing this, because God said this is what would happen to the house of Ahab, and Joram is of the house of Ahab. He's his son. So this killing of Joram was just the fulfillment of the command. And the word burden, in fact, twice in the Old Testament, it's translated as the word prophecy. So that's the meaning of it here, is that it's that prophecy. If you read... The last part of verse 25, when I and thou rode together after Ahab his father, the Lord laid this prophecy upon him. You can put the word prophecy there. It's the same Hebrew word. So just as Jehu did to Bidkar, it's good for us who are in the service of the Lord to remind each other, even to encourage each other from time to time that what we are doing, as strange and unpopular as it is to the world, What we are doing is no more and no less than the burden God placed upon us. He put a prophecy, he put many prophecies in the Bible. And he has ordained that we be part of carrying that out. That we preach the gospel to every creature. 
He that believeth shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be condemned. So for our part, we preach the gospel. We don't save and we don't condemn in that sense. We give the message that does save. We, get the mes- we give the message that does condemn when it's rejected. Look in verse 26. As Jehu continues telling uh, Bidkar about this prophecy. And this is what the Lord said. Verse 26 is what the Lord said. Surely I have seen yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, saith the Lord. And I will requite thee. In this plat, saith the Lord. Now therefore take and cast him into the plat of ground. That's the portion. It's, it's referring to that same place. According to the word of the Lord. So it's very clear that God placed this prophecy against the house of Ahab. Why? For what he did to Naboth and to his sons. There is no mistake so when Bidkar cast this king's body, remember Joram was a king. When he cast this dead king's body unceremoniously onto the ground of Naboth's vineyard, he can do so without saying, oh, I hope God's okay with that. That just sure seems wrong. No, it's not. It's what God said was going to happen. You're in the clear, Bidkar. And Jehu was a good commander for, for explaining that to him. And sometimes, as teachers of the Bible, we have to explain to other Christians why it's necessary for them to do what they do or not do what they're not supposed to do. If a person comes up to me and says, "Uh, Brother Andy, I'm, I'm just wondering, am I supposed to do this? And they give me some scenario, and I say, no, the Bible says don't do it. Well, They might want to know what the Bible actually says, which I ought to be able to tell them. And if I can't at that time, I need to say, I'll tell you what, let me go find those scriptures. And when I see you Wednesday night or I see you Sunday, I'll have an answer. Or I may send it to you on an email or text. I'll have an answer for you. And then have an answer. I remember a a dear pastor one time who had told one of the church members who asked him a, a good question, a good spiritual question. And it was about applying certain place in the Bible to his own life and how he might go about that. And I remember that pastor telling him, we'll study that together. And so that was my cue to not interfere. I heard that pastor say he's going to study it with his church member, and I just left it right there. And that's what I would do anyway. I wasn't the pastor. And so a few months later, I asked the pastor, I said, did you ever have a chance to study that with this member? And if you didn't have time, I could help. He said, no, I hadn't. Why don't you do it? And I thought, now, if you're going to tell somebody you'll study something with them in the Bible, you do it. And if you're not, tell them, I do not have the time right now, but let me get you over here to brother so-and-so. And he, he'll do that. A pastor doesn't always have the time to spend a lot of time doing certain things because his time is precious. But he, our pastor would, he'd stay up and miss sleep over it. I can guarantee you that. But occasionally he has asked me along the way to help him with various burdens in the ministry, some of them online, some of them here, and I gladly do that because I do have the time and I'll make the time. 
So Jehu was right in going into more specifics with Bidkar about why it was necessary and okay for him to do this thing he commanded. Now let's look at verse 27. But when Ahaziah saw the king of, the king of Judah saw this, he fled by the way of the garden house. And Jehu followed after him and said, Smite him also in the chariot. And they did so at the going up to Gur, which is by Ibliam, and he fled to Megiddo and died there. Now, before Ahaziah, Joram had tried to make conversation with Jehu. You remember that? He rode out to him and said, Is it peace? And, boy... It was treachery, at least in the eyes of, of Jehu or Jor, Joram. So Ahaziah wasn't about to approach Jehu and try to have that same conversation. He took another route, didn't he? But it doesn't matter where he ran, which route he took. He could not outrun the judgment of the Lord. You might ask whether the assassination of Ahaziah was a righteous killing or was it just a senseless killing? Was it just something Jehu piled on top of his merit, his meritorious accomplishment? And although our current text doesn't tell us one way or the other, as you know or may have heard along the way, First and Second Chronicles are parallel passages that reveal different details about the things we study in First and Second Kings. And so sometimes you'll get a little more detail in Second Chronicles or you'll get a little more in Second Kings. And that helps brighten the light a little bit for us. So right here I chose to go to Second Chronicles 22, verse 7. Second Chronicles 22, verse 7. And listen to what is said about the killing of Ahaziah. Because I asked that question, is this a senseless killing by Jehu? Did he just go overboard or was it a good thing? It says, and the destruction of Ahaziah was of God by coming to Joram. For when he was come, he went out with Joram against Jehu, the son of Nimshi, whom the Lord had anointed to cut off the house of Ahab. Well, that settles it for me right there. The destruction of Ahaziah was of God. And he further says that when Joram went out to Jehu, he went against him, and Jehu's mission was to cut off the house of Ahab, then essentially what Ahaziah was doing is joining himself with Joram against God's prophecy. Like, oh, we're not going to let that happen. Huh. And that's why this was a righteous killing. So I'm glad Second Chronicles 22 gives us that. And even if it wasn't there, we know that if it was of God, then it was a righteous killing. But I'm glad that's there for our edification. And the last part of verse 27 says this about Ahaziah who is wounded now with an arrow. And he fled to Megiddo and died there. Now Megiddo was a place that was originally taken from the Gentiles and it was given to the tribe of Manasseh in Joshua chapter 17. And it was a place where battles were fought. And those battles 
never would have been fought had the children of Israel obeyed the commandments of the Lord and walked in his statutes. They wouldn't have had to fight for land that was given to them. It would be theirs. God would protect them. He'd drive out all their enemies. He wouldn't let them suffer famine and disease and pestilence and all of that. That's what Megiddo was. So when the Lord appointed the destruction of Joram, anyone who did not agree that it was right was setting himself against God. Ahaziah set himself against God's word, and he died for it. So God ordained the killing of Ahaziah for that reason. You set yourself against me. You're going to die for it. Now verses 28 through 29, we'll read those together. And his servants, that is, Ahaziah's servants, carried him in a chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in his sepulcher with his fathers in the city of David. And in the eleventh year of Joram, the son of Ahab, began Ahaziah to reign over Judah. So unlike Joram, Ahaziah was buried with his fathers, that's his ancestors, in the city of David. And then verse 29 simply reminds us, it's... it's uh, Reflective of the first part of Ahaziah's reign. It just reminds us that Ahaziah began to reign over Judah. And if you remember, it said his reign would be one year. Not the shortest in history, but a very short reign. He met what the world would call an untimely end. But it's very timely to God. You set yourself against my words, you're not going to be a leader anymore. In fact, you're going to die at the hand of my righteous servant, Jehu. That's how that went. All right, well, now we've got the king of Israel and the king of Judah eliminated. They're out of the way. Let's look at verse 30. And when Jehu was come to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. Now, she's still hanging around. You might not have thought so. Jezebel's still on the, on the scene. And she painted her face and tired her head and looked out at a window. Jezebel did three things when she heard Jehu was coming to town. It said she painted her face. Now, ladies, what do you all think that means? She was putting on her makeup, wasn't she? And we know that took a while. So I don't know how long Jehu had to wait below the window, but it can't be any longer than I wait. The second thing she did, it said she tired her head. Now, we don't use that term. That means she fixed her hair which can also take a seeming eternity. And then she looked out at a window or looked through a window. Why in the world would she do those three things when she hears that Jehu is coming to the city and she has no doubt heard he just assassinated, righteously assassinated two kings? He's not afraid of anybody. Why would she do these three things instead of running and finding a place to hide? Well, what do you think she knows about Jehu? She knows he's a fierce captain of the military. And he's on a mission from God, and he doesn't spare anyone who's in his way, meaning who is in the Lord's way. So Jezebel's strategy is to try to flirt with him so she might be spared his wrath. She's going to use her excellency to entice him to her and away from his assignment to eliminate her. See what she's doing here? Now I'm going to give you an example. 
from my line of work in law enforcement. It's very difficult. Now, for a baseball player, they can go out and hit live pitches, and they have what they call batting practice, so they get better at it. And if they foul one off, it's no big deal. If they hit one over the fence, wonderful. If they swing and miss, it's not a big deal. But in law enforcement, we can't practice shooting at people and see if we get the right one. We don't want to do that. It's dangerous. So we use what we call simulators. And these simulators over the years have become pretty advanced. And it's a big TV screen. And on that screen is projected a situation. And then there is a person over here running the situation, and he can change it in midstream depending on what we do. He can cause someone to pull a gun out of their pants and shoot or somebody to pull a wallet out of their pants and try to get their driver license. These are all things that we use to make ourselves better at what we do. So our simulators allow us to practice these likely scenarios with simulated firearms without the use of real firearms. Oh, they make cool sounds and all that, and they leave little splotches on the screen where we hit to see if we missed or not. But in a suspicious person scenario, which we sometimes get, we will have on those simulator screens an attractive female walk through the location during one of those simulated calls for service. Why would we do that? Because we know where men's eyes are likely to go. And about the time that attractive woman walks through the scene on the screen, a suspect with a weapon will appear way over here. The officer's assignment, now think about Jehu right now. The officer's assignment was to investigate a suspicious person call, not to go ogle some female, even though she might be the suspicious person. And as long as the officer remembers that assignment, that's what he's there for, not to eyeball some woman, but to look for a suspicious person, then he is more likely to be prepared if that suspicious person emerges with a gun or a knife or a baseball bat. But if the sight of that attractive woman lures him away from his assignment and his eyes follow her across that screen, those scenarios are set up to where that officer gets shot dead. Not really, but simulated. You understand? That's why we can't do this. We can't practice this in real life. We have to have simulators. And this, so this is an old trick that Jezebel's using. And she wants to see if it's going to work on Jehu because she doesn't have any other hope of defeating him on his mission. Verse 31, And as Jehu entered in at the gate, she said, that's Jezebel, Had Zimri peace who slew his master? So there she is up in her window with her hair made up and her war paint on, and she looks out. And that's the first thing she says to Jehu. She doesn't ask him if he comes in peace, but she does ask him about peace. Look at this. Had Zimri peace who slew his master. She's trying to cause him to doubt his mission. What does she ask him about? About peace. From the story in 1 Kings chapter 16, which we studied weeks ago, We learned that Zimri was a treasonous fellow 
who killed his own king. And after he killed his own king, Zimri reigned. Now, he's the one who had the shortest reign of all. He reigned for seven days. And then he killed himself by setting fire to the king's house while he was still inside. And no, this Zimri did not have peace when he slew his master. Jezebel knew that. But Zimri's killing of his master was a little bit different because this was the case of one evil man killing another evil man. Zimri had no peace before he killed his master. In fact, if you remember, he was a drunkard. He was drunk when he killed his king. And so Jezebel takes this example and tries to use it to make Jehu think, if you kill me, I'm still the queen. If you kill me, you're not going to have any peace either. However, Jezebel also has a burden or a prophecy assigned to her. In fact, I'll remind you of what Elijah said back in 1 Kings 21, verse 23. He said, And of Jezebel also spake the Lord, saying, The dogs shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Verse 32, this is Jehu, And he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who is on my side? And there looked out to him two or three eunuchs. Now Jehu had several options when he approached this place where Jezebel was. He could have gone inside. He could have said, hey guys, hold my spear. I'm about to go up here and into the palace and speak face to face with this evil woman. But inside the palace, she might have been more successful at trying to seduce him or having him ambushed when he tried to walk up the stairs. Jehu stayed where he was supposed to stay. Now you think about that. He knew she put her makeup on and she had her hair done and she tried to persuade him away from his mission. And the last thing that a man needs to do if a woman's trying to seduce him is get close to her. Stay far away. He said, who is on my side, which in this case means who's on the Lord's side. Back in Exodus chapter 32, Moses had just come down from Mount Sinai after hearing the commotion and seeing the people worshiping a golden calf, and he was furious. And I want you to listen to what he said in verses 25 through 26. This is Exodus 32 verses 25 through 26. And when Moses saw that the people were naked, for Aaron had made them naked unto their shame among their enemies. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, "Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me." He didn't say run up to Mount Sinai where the Lord has met with me. They die. As soon as they crossed that threshold, they were dead. Their animals were dead. He said, let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him, unto Moses. So notice that although Moses asked who was on the Lord's side, 
He told those who were on the Lord's side to come to him, and the Levites gathered themselves to Moses, which showed they were on the Lord's side. Now, this places a great responsibility on Moses, doesn't it? To be sure he is on the Lord's side. That first has to happen. He has to make sure he's on the Lord's side before he gathers those on the Lord's side to himself. Many people want God to be on their side. I read a short news clipping about a college football coach whose team won this weekend. And he said, the good Lord was looking after us. Let me tell you, I don't think God cares who wins a football game any more than he cares what color that pew is right there. But many people want want God to be on their side, but they're not on the Lord's side themselves. They're unsaved, or perhaps they're doing or teaching something wrong. When members of a church leave that church for a righteous cause, a righteous cause, then what we do is we leave the side of a pastor and the other churchgoers, don't we? We, we leave. We're not with them anymore. We're not on their side anymore. But that doesn't mean we're not on the Lord's side. And it also doesn't mean that the pastor and those other churchgoers at that church are on the Lord's side. When the children of Israel were gathered to Aaron to make the golden calf and then to worship it, they came to Aaron's side, didn't they? But in his actions on that day, Aaron, although he would be the high priest later on representing God to the people and the people to God, on that day he was not on the Lord's side. And neither were the people who came to his side. But can you imagine on that day, as happens in many churches today, if some of those people would have said, Hey, wait a minute, Aaron. Huh. We don't worship anybody but the Lord God. And I'm sure not taking my clothes off and dancing around in front of a golden calf, ever. Then Aaron and those leaders may have very well told that Jew, Well, then you're not on the Lord's side you're not on our side and that's not true Moses on the other hand was on the Lord's side so it was right for him to say what he did in those verses I read you who is on the Lord's side let him come to me some arrogant church leaders will say when a person leaves their church for a scriptural reason they'll say this they'll use a part of 1 John 2 verse 19 They'll say, they went out from us, but they were not of us. However, they use the verse incorrectly, incompletely, and out of context. Here's what those two verses actually say. 1 John 2, I believe it's 18 through 19. Little children, it is the last time, and as ye have heard, that Antichrist shall come. Even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For had they been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out, that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Who went out from that church? Antichrists did. Unbelievers, don't let that stun you. There are people with the spirit of Antichrist. Verse 22 of that same chapter defines what that is, what an Antichrist is. 
Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. So if they are Antichrists, they are not on the Lord's side, are they? And we would agree that the Scriptures plainly declared that the Apostle John was on the Lord's side. Jesus called him to be an apostle. So if John taught the truth, as we close, if John taught the truth and he was on the Lord's side, then the antichrists who went out from his congregation were not on the Lord's side. And keep this lesson in mind because Satan will try to trick you into thinking that you're not on the Lord's side if you disagree with an unscriptural teacher or pastor. And those unscriptural teachers and pastors will try to convince you of that as well. And we'll close right there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the hungry people who come to hear it, to learn from it, and to live by it. And by your grace, Lord, we'll do that as we go out from this place. Bless our pastor and the congregation during the next hour. May the word of God taught and profit each of us being mixed with faith in Jesus' name.